arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. In New York City, on a street in the East 40s, there's an ordinary tailor shop. Or is it ordinary? We entered through the agent's entrance, and we are now in UNCLE headquarters. That's the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. UNCLE is an organization consisting of agents of all nationalities. It's involved in maintaining political and legal order anywhere in the world. My name is Napoleon Soto. I'm an enforcement agent in Section 2 here. That's operations and enforcement. I am Ilya Kuryakin. I am also an enforcement agent. Like my friend Napoleon, I go and I do whatever I am told to by our chief. Oh, oh yes. Alexander Waverley, number one in Section 1, in charge of this, our New York headquarters. It's from here that I send these young men on their various missions. In the 1960s, The Man from Uncle was a TV response to the James Bond movies. Uncle filled Tuesday and then Monday nights with gadgets, suspense, and romance. The secret agent craze was on. Loftus was a part of the service, a worldwide intelligence service of the U.S. government. He moved his way up and then lost his position when his former boss was killed in Los Angeles Harbor under Loftus's responsibility. Now he is being called back to investigate agency goings-on in his old college town of Appleton, Vermont. His reporter, Mike Brand, is all too eager to work for Loftus and break the story. Let us begin Episode 2 of Sojourn by Robert P. Fitton, starting right now. From his father's shoulders, Trevor watched the Montank scatter across the grassy bluffs above the darkening ocean. Nothing looked familiar here. As the hazy sun sank below the purple hills, Trevor realized how far he was from his home village. More refugees, a few survivors of the Creod attacks, crammed the open boats below and raised poles into the air. Father, what are they doing? One of their couriers has talked to the Montang this afternoon. Now that the attacks have been over, they are preparing to light the torches of oneness against the hordes. The Montang will join them in solidarity. His father pointed to one of the wispy, white-bearded, learned ones standing next to the fire. Montang members threw scraggly branches into the blaze, while others sat on the rocks and made torches from the soaked barlar root wrapped onto the sticks. Then we all resonate with Tab and Shah. 
Trevor watched the learned one. His knowledge was ancient, spanning the millennia, according to his father. Other Montang members set down the gray-knitted foodstuff bags and gathered in a circle around the brightening fire. Trevor looked up at the new stars in the night sky and then studied the tired Montang faces in the firelight. Only Tabung Shah could rescue their battered spirits. He stayed on his father's shoulders as the ceremony began with a sad, mournful chant. The Montang joined hands and praised Tabung Shah as an identical distant chorus echoed back from the boat survivors. Trevor was too afraid to sing. He turned from the ocean as the bearded learned one dipped the first torch into the blaze and passed it around the circle. The resonating continued as each person grasped the lighted torch, and across the bay the flames bobbed up and down with the waves. The learned one, wrapped in smooth gray garments, tied at the waist with a faded red rope, stepped back and someone held an ancient, dried skin-covered book before him. He rolled his eyes upward in the firelight, and his voice shook with emotion as he spoke the sacred words. Sabor Delicia Melbourne. From the third millennium, the saber tells us of the final battle. We do not presently face the final battle, only a struggle of the Altasharian people. Against the day the skies are green, lightning from the heavens will lay waste to the valley and destroy the cities. The flying demons of death come without warning. His connoisseur eyes seeking new prey. He is the evil, the destroyer. He holds the death empire. Trust in the oneness of Tabun Shah. Under the wings, hide the last ones that have followed the convictions to the Bunshaf, where the Kapun meets the Bereliton at the Semta. Find the waters of life, for he who will begin to wander will return. The Suryaf Khan returns for the final battle to thwart the intervengeance with the oneness of Tabun Shah. The fate of all rests with him. The learned one gazed upward to the brightening stars. Praise be to Tabun Shah. Where is Tabun Shah? Why do we resonate? We resonate to where? whispered Traber. It is not of this world, said his father. What is oneness? Oneness is the totality of good, everything in alignment without the disruption of the inner vengeance. The torch flames pierce the blackness and the light points continue to roll on the black ocean. After another long chant, the Montaigne members close their eyes and place their fingertips on their temples. As they resonated, the learned one extinguished his torch. Each torch went dark on the cliffs and then on the sea until only the main fire burned. After a long silence, the evening winds moved over the cliffs and one of his father's friends walked in front of the group. I have never known an Altasharian who has seen the Bunshaf. Trevor's father gestured to his friend. The learned one is aware of visits to the shrine. Are you not, learned one? The learned one, now seated under the fire, nodded his flowing white hair. His moist eyes reflected the firelight. And what do we gain if we reach the Bunshaf? Trevor's father held his dangling ankles as he turned. 
Nothing, if the Creods have destroyed it. Two men helped the learned one to his feet. We speak in discordant tones. How little you trust the oneness of Tabun Shah. The fires of destruction forever pass over those who trust their convictions. The Buncha will allow us to travel in the ancient waters and escape the hordes. We shall cross the passageway and see the face of the Surya Khan, the one who will rise for the final battle against the inner vengeance. Several Wantang members held his arms and led him beyond the rocks to sleep. When they had disappeared around the ledge, the member behind Trevor stood between the fire and the group. I tell you, he is an old man with old myths and legends. We are all doomed. No, shouted Trevor's father. And how shall we conquer those creatures in their cluster ships? The learned one's words, hear the saber, trust in the oneness of Tabun Shah. Dull green light flashed over the distant ocean clouds. His father's eyes opened wide as he turned toward the sea. Montaigne members rushed to smother the fire. They gathered the foodstuff bags and ran for cover under the rocks. Trevor saw the silver cluster ships roaring over the ocean as he prepared to die. His father set him on the ground and took his hand. The Montaigne wiggled like insects under the boulders in the ledges as the skies thundered with the approaching ships. The first attack shook the rocks as the sky blazed green. He peered over the rocks and could now see the hundreds of boats within the Creod light flashes. But the glowing silver ships hovered above and produced brighter and longer beams across the bay. Steam and thick clouds whitened from the bubbling, hissing swarth. Trevor knew the Altasharians in the bay were now dead. He buried his head into his father's chest, cried, and resonated to Taban Shah for protection against the inner vengeance. Chapter 8 Vernon had never met a bigger dunce than Bud Connors, Appleton's homeland security chief. The man could not keep his mouth shut nor did he know how to run an investigation, yet he had convinced himself he was the best officer on planet Earth. Vernon's wrist comm connected to the portal screen. Hey ho, gentlemen, said the square-jawed Connor. I just want to brief you men on our progress. Hey, no, no, that, that's all right, said Vernon. Regulations do require a clearance to discuss sensitive matters, Chief. We have just talked to everyone up here about David Winslow. Vronsky, didn't I just tell him? Apparently, he doesn't listen too well. Well, we have decided that we're going to stay clear of this Winslow thing. Well, thanks for looking, Crawford out. Oh, Agent Crawford, uh, would you keep us informed if this Winslow has penetrated our security up here in Appleton? You'll be the first to know, Crawford out. Well, that's mighty kind of you. Okay, Chief. Crawford out. You have a fine day. I will. And your associate there, too. I will tell him. Very good, if there's nothing more. Vernon cut the wrist comm connection. What a blithering idiot. How would you uh, say it, a local yokel? Asked Bronsky. I'm making some coffee. You want some? Sure. Vernon activated the coffee compactor next to the cooling unit. 
He sat in the corner chair and balanced his tablet on his knees as the coffee brewed. During the past 48 hours, the service was no less reliable with pertinent information than Connors. Why had he and Bronsky not been told about the shenanigans up here in Vermont? Were they that stupid in the service to think he couldn't recognize a major operation? Retirement, something he had hedged about and only 58 days away, looked not only viable but appealing. Vernon, Bronsky looked up from his tablet. I have the information on O'Brien. Vernon pulled an MX chocolate bar from his Suco pocket as the coffee dripped into the carafe and saturated the room with a deep roast blend. He tore open the silver inner wrapper. Bronsky raised his eyebrows at the tablet. What do you got? Something uh, you overlooked. Bronsky's youth and cockiness irritated Vernon. You know, you might have worded that differently. He did leave under an assumed name, David Winslow. How did I overlook Winslow? He boarded Quick Rail 6250 from New York and then uh, bound for San Francisco. Okay, I didn't get the Quick Rail information. Vernon checked the coffee again and leaned toward Bronsky's tablet. Why San Francisco? I don't know, but then he disappears. I'll find him. Right. Vernon wandered back to the kitchenette and put his mug under the dripping coffee. Bronsky, so clean-cut in his white shirt and tie, and not afraid to let everyone know he had all the right answers, could get his own coffee. Universal payment, New York City for the fare, but now he's gone. Well, somebody's got him. He mixed in copious amounts of sweetener and resin. I never liked resin. This is Vermont. Don't they have cows up here anymore? I liked it when you could just add milk and some damn sugar. Back when I started, I think this thing requires a report. Hey, Bronsky, didn't your mother ever tell you it's impolite to interrupt somebody when they're reminiscing? Did you say something, Vernon? I'm asking, what the hell is wrong with Mundy or even Garvey for that matter? Why can't this thing be checked out by Washington? Haven't you asked yourself why they sent us up here? Bronsky's wrist calm sounded. This is Bronsky. He sat up quickly and pushed the tablet aside and stood. Yes, Chief Mundy, he's, uh, he's uh, right here. He typed on his tablet to transfer the call to the motel portal. Vernon prattled on as Bronsky typed. Well, Harmon's ears were burning, that's for sure. That boob, the portal beeped. Yes, Harmon, how are you? Robert? There's something I neglected to tell you. Mundy had a grating, gruff voice. Something about O'Brien. What about him? asked Vernon as he sipped the coffee and winced. Then he sat in the chair. I wonder if this coffee is artificial, too. What was that? asked Mundy, banging something on the other end. I said I want a real cup of coffee. Oh, yes. Well, well, you see, O'Brien, he uncovered something up here. Right up here. Right up there. Oh, no shit. Oh, that language is hardly protocol. Hardly. What are you talking about, Harmon? I'm addressing the inappropriate use of language in a professional conversation. What about O'Brien? O'Brien, yes. A couple of murders up there, but uh, it was all in his mind. Mind you, in his mind. Murders up here in Appleton? Vernon leaped from the chair, spilling some of the coffee on the rug. He directed his comments toward the portal. Nice to be brief before we're sent up here to an operation, Harmon. 
So there uh, weren't any real murders. O'Brien was just a uh, nutcase. <laughs> Said that these murders, some of them, you know, big cheeses, Vernon, big cheeses. Harmon, what the hell are you talking about? Heads of oil companies, nuclear and solar CEOs. The rumors have to be stopped, yes sir. Mustn't disturb the Pequa flow. The what? Why didn't you tell me all this before? No, just an oversight. And O'Brien knew all about this? Well, he said he did, but it's absolute foolishness, I tell you. Joe Atkins' death was uh, an accident. Vernon sat down again and closed his eyes. Who the hell is Joe Atkins? Well, he worked at the, uh, the uh, superconductor project up in the hills. Joe was killed in a car accident. O'Brien claimed that Atkins was murdered. <laughs> Was he? Oh, no, of course not. Come on. These are not real murders. Trumped up, trumped up, dreamed up, bullied up. Vernon tried to relax the tension by gripping his temples. I'm just a little confused as to why we're up here. To make sure these damn lies are stopped. Yes, we must evaluate them. Act now, act now. Vicious lies. Harmon, listen. I retired 58 days. In fact, in all my time in the field, I've never heard such nonsense. What is really going on up here? Superconductor, superconductor, put a spin on it for me, Vernon. You can do it. Stop the lies. Stop the lies. Mundy cut the line. Vernon stared at the portal. Superconductor's my arse. Well, you shouldn't talk that way to the director, said Bronsky. Bronsky, let me be the first to officially tell you to shut the hell up. Get on that tablet of yours and look up Joseph Atkins and all the government records. I want to know who we work for. Vernon connected his own wristcom. We call last number. I'm sick of that bulbous tub of lard and his evasive answers. Mixed up stories and syntax. I'm calling him back right now. Station Harmony, answered one of the secretaries. This is Vernon Crawford. Put me through to the director. The director is out. I just spoke with him. Bronsky watched him closely as if he were filing any indiscretions away for future reference. Vernon scanned the room and the tablet for actual recording devices and would probably need to screen Bronsky right now. The director is not in the country. Well, then get him on the damn satellite if you have to. I'm sorry, Mr. Crawford. The director left specific orders that he cannot be disturbed. I can leave him a message. You tell him that Vernon Crawford wants answers right away. Vernon slammed the phone again. Unbelievable. He can't even give straight answers to his senior men. What a blithering idiot. We never had these problems when Allsworthy was director. Bronsky pushed a few more buttons. The director must have his reasons. This is a setup. A real setup. Director, he couldn't direct traffic. There is no record of a uh, Joseph Atkins working for the service or any other government agency. Oh, great. They probably blipped the whole thing out. Vernon picked up his MX bar and bit around the arm and swishing the chocolate between his teeth as he spoke. We need to get videos from the quick rail ports where O'Brien's train stopped, especially in San Francisco. I want to see who the hell picked him up and keep a hook on his girlfriend's wrist calm. Okay, I'll get on it right now, but, but, but what? I just don't understand why the director would lead us astray. Son, let me tell you something. We're being squeezed. Take my word for it. Mundy is a bonehead.
Chapter 9. A bristly-haired foreman with a Spanish accent barked at the painting crew. The painters began brushing the white paint on Vandermeer's front shingles as the other workers scurried to clean the yard. The foreman complained that he did not have enough men to finish the job on schedule. With Loftus's approval, Mikey had decided to snoop around the house by posing as a painter. Mikey figured that others might accompany Vandermeer back to the house when the doctor arrived back in town on Sunday. Zack quickly transmitted a concocted resume to Mikey's RISCOM. Mikey printed the fabricated background on the motel printer. He created Miguel Arrio, a Spanish-speaking painter with two solid references on the West Coast, linked to actual numbers and voicemail connected to Zack's room at the loft. All those years Mikey reported from the barrios would finally prove useful. From a Main Street landline, he called about getting a job, and they told him to talk with security at the house. Half an hour later, he arrived on foot, unshaven and hair askew, at Vandermeer's three-winged white house south of the center of Appleton. In the circular drive, security men in jeans and open-collar shirts scanned and read his folded resume. They even checked his fabricated carte blanche immigration card. Fifteen minutes later, they brought him back to the paint crew. The spindly-haired foreman studied the resume and scanned the CBIC. Then he instructed Mikey to work painting the house's green shutters stacked on sawhorses in the front yard. Zack's number routing routine and phony CBIC must have worked since no one had thrown him off the job. For the next two days, he painted more shutters, but all the while he scrutinized the house and grounds. More security people arrived in mid-afternoon of the second day. A small pewter Mercedes attracted his attention. Vandermeer, a bulky man in his fifties, wearing a blue seersucker suit, stepped onto the circular drive. Like the picture in the science building office, Vandermeer had coarse gray hair and a trimmed goatee. Followed by two aides, he carried an oversized black briefcase at an unusually quick pace. Security people met him on the porch and brought him inside. Mikey had used the bathroom adjacent to the kitchen several times. He had ample opportunities to study the home's interior and listen. Ever since he left California, he had thought about using Zack's electronic toys. Now he formulated a risky plan to hide in the attic near the heating ducts, where he could successfully monitor any conversation in the house. Late in the afternoon as he approached the house, he had heard the security men speaking freely and laughing. They were convinced he didn't speak English. Cuarto de baño. Oh, Cuarto de Baño, <laughs> said one of the men imitating him. Cuarto de Baño, Rick. The security contact Rick, a baby-faced punk with greasy hair, barked at him. It's the bathroom, you dummy. Bathroom. How many times do I have to tell you? Cuarto de Baño, answered Mikey. Rick shook his head and pointed Mikey across the kitchen. But as he crossed by the kitchen's center counter, an older punchy man in charge of the security detail rounded the corner from the living room. What the hell is this painter doing wandering the house? Cuarto de baño, shouted Mikey. He says he wants to go to the bathroom, Norman, said Rick. Now listen, I have John Garvey arriving here in 36 hours, and I don't need some dumbass painter strolling around the house. He don't even speak English. Cuarto de baño, he says, I know what he's saying. Bring him to the goddamn potty, Rick. Mikey appeared befuddled, nodding his head as he passed Rick. Garvey's arrival tomorrow night would grant him the opportunity to screen the meeting and get listening devices into the attic. 
As he stepped inside the bathroom, he could hear Norman issuing more orders inside the kitchen. I want this place perfect. All this painting and cleanup will be done in 24 hours. Then clear the place. Get the bastards out of here before Garvey arrives. Mikey flushed the toilet, wondering if he could logistically sneak upstairs tomorrow. He might have overplayed the bathroom routine. In the hall, he gazed up the carpet runner, leading to the second floor. He scampered into the hall and studied the staircase. As if he were snapping a quick photo, he looked around the corner at a varnished door atop the stairs. Then he tiptoed back to the kitchen hall and stuck his head around the corner. Norman had left the area. Muchas gracias, senorita. Yeah, right. Get your ass outside. He gave Mikey a fleeting glance and faced his men. And where the hell are the maids? We're paying for this house. Let's not have it look like a pig pen. You know how much of a pain in the ass John Garvey is. Mikey stepped outside and gazed briefly toward the slate-tiled roof. Getting inside that attic and screening John Garvey would provide Loftus with critical information. Then he could file his own story to the central feeds. On the motel landline, Loftus indicated he and Zack were seriously thinking of traveling back to Appleton. Mikey's lack of confidence stemmed from proving he was as capable as the two former service agents. Because he feared Loftus might veto the attic plan, he said nothing about it, hung up and dragged out the backpack. He located the miniature amplifier and bell pack he had placed in his ear back in San Francisco. He sunk his head into the pillows. Just getting up to the third floor would be difficult. His plan would commence with a provoked argument with Hector, the foreman. Then he would stomp off the job. Once Hector thought he had left the area, he would circle back and ask the inside security personnel if he could use the bathroom again. Then he could sneak up the carpet runner with impunity because Hector would believe he had quit and left the area. Mikey rolled off the bed, crossed the room in his socks, and opened the motel door. His heart thumped as he watched a few cars exit at the university and head into town. A bright smattering of wispy high clouds blended into the crimson sky above the silhouetted Vermont mountains. The transhalogen lights slowly brightened. Danger would follow him once he began to monitor John Garvey, Vandermeer, and the powerful intelligence community. The painter Rouse had worked only because he had performed his painting duties. He now placed himself at great risk once he brought the equipment to the attic. As he stood at the motel doorway, he was not sure if he could even sleep tonight. But despite this danger, this would be the story of his career. Chapter 10 With the listening device stuffed in his pocket, Mikey pivoted at the bathroom door and leaped up the staircase runner. His feigned argument with Hector worked perfectly, and everyone outside thought he had stormed off the property. He ducked into one of the side bedrooms when he heard voices atop the stairs. Maybe they were just arrogant or confident, but the lax security astounded him. How did Loftus ever do this type of work in the service? He vowed never to become involved in something like this again. If these people did not shoot him, he probably would die from a heart attack. Two security men bounded up the hall, but stopped just outside the bedroom. They talked about some logistical matter from years ago and then descended the stairs back to the kitchen. Mikey peered down the hallway, then he rounded the corner and bolted up the third floor stairs. He placed his hand on the steel knob and twisted it quickly. The door popped and he shined his tiny flashlight over numerous crates, boxes, and sheet-covered furniture. Old galvanized heating ducts ran along the stucco chimney to his left. He closed the door slowly. 
in the stuffy air, he inched across the springy wood floorboards. Between the chimney and a row of taped cardboard boxes, he retrieved Zack's listening device and strapped it to his belt. A red button glowed in the dim louver light when he flipped the power switch and lifted the amplifier to his ear. The garbled painter's conversation on the patio prompted him to point the microphone toward the heating ducts. Now a clearer signal brought in the security man's stray comments downstairs. He turned the knob and numerous voices filtered into the amplifier like a raw band report on the central feeds. In the darkness, he dipped his hand into a plastic bag packed with high-energy mix and placed a nugget in his mouth. With the conference pending, he had an opportunity to smash the story wide open. After supper, Rick cleared all the non-essential personnel from the lower rooms. Mikey stopped munching on the nuggets when he heard them climbing upstairs. He lay motionless behind the boxes as someone kicked the staircase door and every light bulb in the attic blazed. Maybe the security was tighter than he thought. The floorboards creaked and the sound of shoes against the wood sent his heart racing. Somebody moved the furniture only ten feet away from the boxes, but they backtracked and the bulbs went out. The door closed abruptly. Mikey sat in the darkness, exhaled and finished his half-melted nugget. During the next 45 minutes, the chatter below indicated John Garvey from the service was scheduled to arrive at any time. Around 8, Mikey heard commotion out front. Cars rumbled into the driveway below, doors closed, and Rick mentioned John Garvey's name on a walkie-talkie. Another car door snapped shut, and a voice as crisp as the crack of a rifle shot reverberated in his earphone. Horace, where the hell is Horace? Tell him John Garvey is here. I'm right here, John. Place looks good. I can see we've been spending our dollars well. John, I've taken the liberty of having my cook prepare a delightful dinner for us. Get some burgers. Answered Garvey. Mikey smiled. I'm not here for your fine dining and dinner conversation. Where the hell is Garrett Raster? Is he here yet? Well, he's in the dining room said Vandermeer. Rick, give me a goddamn drink, will you? Good evening, John. Said a new voice, mellow but stern. I see you've made your usual graceful entrance. Not funny, Raster. I'm here to make sure you don't screw this up. You understand? No screw-ups. My ass is on the line from Washington and from up north. I want this to go like clockwork. Comprendo? Don't push me, John said Raster. I work for you guys, but you don't own me. And you and Mundy don't have to worry. I'll pull this off. Just don't push me. After some dead air, Garby's voice crackled into Mikey's earpiece again. Where the hell are the burgers? Hasn't anybody sent for those burgers yet? I want everybody to listen up. Because of security considerations, we've changed things. Phase 1 will now commence at 800 hours tomorrow morning. Well, that's absurd. We're not ready for that. Mikey knew getting this information back to Loftus was critical. Horace, you built the system. Can it or can it not be done at 800 tomorrow? Well, that's not the question, John. The system can function at any time, but getting everyone ready, good. We'll make it 800. Vandermeer spoke in a lower voice. Whatever you want, John. 
Oh, stop your bootlicking, Horace, said Raster. I have to reiterate what you just said about the human factor. Too bad, said Garby quickly. Changing the time will throw off any saboteurs. You will test those converters at one-hour sequences in unison with the ground station and Colonel Mundy's coordination up north. Oh, God help us, said Raster. Do you have a problem with that, mister? You know something, John? You're really starting to piss me off. You always have. You demanded the operation go off like clockwork, yet you push it up to tomorrow morning when nobody's ready. You run the risk of human failure here. I have my orders, said Garvey. Well, from whom? asked Raster, his voice louder. That's classified. Monday, it has to be Monday. Another brilliant decision. And what the hell is going on up north that nobody knows about? I told you, everything is classified. And why is it that all 13 ground stations around the globe don't know what's happening up north? We have a right to know. We made the sub-atmospheric transmission possible. Garvey shot out a quick laugh. <laughs> you don't have the right to know jack shit, Garrett. As I have said before, John, where did you steal it from? Classified. Ah, the catch-all phrase, said Raster. Let me ask one more time. Do you have any problem firing up those converters in 800 hours, Garrett? Ha! Ah, it would appear that you do have a problem. In three hours, you will report to work. You worry about your end, and I'll worry about mine. I will put the converters online, but I vouch for nothing. The converters better be online. A successful test tomorrow will make phase one operational by next month. Rasta's voice dropped off like the whistle from a passing train. My people have been working hard. You can observe that instead of barking out your orders. In the earpiece, he heard people scamper on the wood floorboards, and then scattered inaudible voices and a silence within the lonely tick of a clock. Mikey leaned back and broke off another nugget, but as he crunched the grain and nuts with the chocolate, Garvey and Raster argued again. He adjusted the signal gain and sat up when Raster demanded that Garvey put away his gun. You've broken security. Security? Have you lost your service mind? Yelled Raster. I won't even address such a claim. You push all your bleeding-hearted reservations onto Joe Atkins said Garvey. Mikey fumbled with the ear device. I'm sure you had a hand in that too, didn't you, John? I follow orders, mister, do you? I'm a scientist, and as a scientist I care about the proper implementation of this technology, even though I don't know where the technology came from. What we are doing here will change human history. Sustaining sub-atmospheric electrical transmission could raise the standard of living of everyone. Instead, it seems to have been perverted into a pawn in some kind of power game. Spare me the canned homily. What do you know about Mark O'Brien? Asked Garvey. I think I need a lawyer. An ensuing scuffle merged into the sound of smacking fists. Raster wailed and his voice quivered. You have lost it, John. Shut up. Garvey's voice was loud enough to boom through the attic louvers. Where is O'Brien and who did he meet in San Francisco? Mikey knew he had to warn Loftus now. 
These people, once they figured things out, would follow O'Brien's trail to the loft and back to his own apartment. Go ahead, John. Shoot me. Let me become another victim of this sordid scenario. You son of a bitch, get it over with. I don't want to live to see what you people intend to do with this. Where is O'Brien? Answer my question. I can't stop phase one or phase two, said Raster. How do you know we're going to phase two? Trying to push Denver communications on the White House is just another attempt by the service to squeeze power. You'll be found out, John, and all your pinheaded superiors. Several short pops followed. Garby must have emptied his entire gun chamber. Mikey's heart thumped and he breathed rapidly as if he were running a foot race. Garby then ordered his men to remove Raster's body. Vernon Crawford, what the hell? Asked Garby. Mikey remembered Loftus telling him that the veteran agent was in Appleton. Vernon, go back to your hotel room and stay out of this, will you? That's Garrett Raster. You just killed Garrett Raster, you stupid bastard. Capo Vernon, I'm your superior now. The one man left who might have been able to find O'Brien. We just had two perfect witnesses, and now you've managed to kill both of them. I have my orders. Oh, no doubt you do, you stupid son of a bitch. Now, now, Vernon, temper, temper. You're overstepping your assignment by being here. Vernon's voice exploded in Mikey's ear. What the hell is going on up here? Vernon, just bide your time and you'll be out to pasture in just a few weeks. I'm calling Monday myself. Anything that is taking place right here has 100% support from Harmon. Now be a good boy and go back to bed. Get some beauty sleep. Vernon's cursing filtered upward as he repeated how Garvey was dangerous. Car doors closed and an engine started. Tires crunched in the gravel on the driveway. Somehow he had to get out of the attic and get this new information to Loftus. He leaned against the heating duct and waited. Chapter 11 Mikey tapped a button on the RISCOM, 3.35 a.m. He rubbed his eyes and swung the compact transhalogen around the wood rafters. Crickets chirped in the ear amplifier and the ever-present antique clock ticked somewhere in the house. Someone snored sporadically in one of the bedrooms and he heard rhythmic breathing when he moved his head. He stood precariously in the dark and stretched his aching muscles. Then he shuffled toward the stairway door. He turned the cold steel knob gingerly and dragged the door back without a creak. Gray light from an unknown source shone across the second floor's finely sheared carpet. He moved quietly down the stairs, extinguished the transhalogen, and stepped on the rug. The outside security lights were the only source of illumination in the hallway. He moved cautiously down the second floor hall and studied the security lights swarth angled against the neatly cut back lawn. The snoring emanated from a room to his left. He tightened his churning stomach as he rounded the stairs and tiptoed down the runner to the first floor. Once in the hallway next to the bathroom, he checked the kitchen tiles and the wood-framed atrium doors. The lawn, like a blanket, stretched toward a mass of bushy weeds on the perimeter. He reasoned that a road paralleled the yard. A red motion sensor above the cabinets flickered in the dark as he reached for the elongated brass door handles. He closed the door as quickly as he had opened it. The motion sensor flashed through the pane windows. 
He ran into the night air, but stopped abruptly near a wide blood splotch absorbed into the landscape bricks. His heartbeat accelerated as he crossed the patio onto the dewy lawn. He slipped on the wet grass, but when he struggled to his feet, more lights blazed across the yard. Then he steadied himself before sprinting between the trees and the wide brick chimney. He reached the road pavement half a minute later. Ahead, the mountains carved against the black starry sky loomed higher at night. Car engines started back at the compound as he sidestepped across the asphalt and leaped into the cornfield across the street. The stalks whipped against his hands as he slipped in the packed soil. He poked at his wrist comb as headlights swung across the road and shined between the corn stalks. His life depended not only on his ability to reach the woods, but he had to elude security once in the woods. He scrambled in the loose dirt between the corn stalks and then hurtled more scrappy bushes. Over his shoulder, headlights brightened on the road beyond the field. Bushes quickly yielded to open pine groves and smaller scrubs were scattered over the rolling forest. Above, the stars flickered between the slope's lofty branches. Mikey jogged steadily, constantly looking back, and he wondered why they had not found him. Under a long rock ledge, he held the transhalogen in his shaking hands. He accessed Loftus's address on the wrist com and jabbed at the orange transmit button. Nothing happened, and he tried several more times. He must have jarred the wrist com when he fell. Several more attempts were futile. Still breathing heavily, he looked up through the mountainside tree branches. In a few hours, the sun would rise over the valley. They would spot him instantly if he went back into town, but he needed a landline. He began climbing the mountain. As daylight slowly extinguished the stars, the valley developed like a vintage chemical photograph in a darkroom tray. Mikey repeatedly attempted to activate the wrist comb. Near the summit, the steep slope required him to grasp rigid tree branches and the flexible bushes. He crawled onto a protruding ledge about a hundred feet below the summit trees. Loose angled rocks littered the final few feet to the top. Across the valley, the college's brick library and a plethora of smaller buildings looked like a small city within the fields and the surrounding dark mountains. Vandermeer's compound, a few miles south of town, lay between a tiny village green and a church steeple. Garvey had ordered the so-called Phase 1 to begin at 8 a.m. From this vantage point, Mikey might spot something he could relay to Loftus once he reached a landline. He faced the eastern mountains and inhaled the clear air under an orange-painted metal observation tower. The compound's white clapboards, bright in the burgeoning sunlight below, looked empty. He figured they had assumed either an intruder tripped the alarm or the alarm had malfunctioned. In 45 minutes, the sub-atmospheric test would commence. Again, he tried the wrist calm as he faced the orange grid tower. He ducked under the tower's support as the wind blew up through a break in the trees. Gripping the side railings of a steep metal ladder, Mikey zigzagged to the top. Above the summit trees, he stuck his head through a square opening in the grid platform. He had an unobstructed view of the mountain range to the meandering river to the west, a cleared area about a mile to the west and behind the notch in the mountains caught his attention. Five black antenna dishes, each with a center silver rod angled upward. To the rear, three linear gray buildings near the woods led to a descending road. 
He kept his eyes on the antennas. Vernon, binoculars draped around his neck, positioned himself on the 26th floor of the student library. He panned at the mountain range to the south. Then he scanned the tablet's topographical readout. The town, highlighted in the forward quadrangle, bordered farm and residential land to the mountains. The contour lines converged along the range. I want your opinion on this, Bronski. You haven't said much. They're telling us somebody broke into that house early this morning, but they're not sure. Bronski kept his stolid exterior. Well, I think someone broke out of that house. That's very good. I didn't consider that. Vernon stroked his chin, put on his bifocals, and scrolled down the handheld tablet. Clear color images and, and background checks soon filled the screen. These are the pictures of the workers on the estate. I'll bet you dollars to donuts that one of these people was hiding in that house and privy to everything that went on there last night. Bronsky studied the screen as Vernon displayed the images taken around the outside of the house. Rick said there was no risk in hiring illegal aliens. I don't give a damn if they're interplanetary aliens. Vernon pushed the power pack on his binoculars and zoomed in along the mountain range. Birds perched on the tree branches and individual rock grains came into focus. He set the zoom back. Again, he stopped at the forest clearing and studied the gray clapboard building windows. The black antennas and silver rods fascinated him. Superconductors, what the hell are they really doing up here? Most of these workers are illegal aliens, said Bronsky, studying the handheld tablet. Vernon listened to Bronsky pontificate, but he was caught up in his own thoughts as he dragged the binocular image along the treetops. You know, if we could find O'Brien, we might get some answers. Someone stood and then spread his stomach across the mountain tower. What the hell? What the hell is that? Well, what do you see, Vernon? There's a guy on his belly on the tower looking down at the antennas. The man's dark hair and eyes were clearer when Vernon magnified the image. That's one of the painters in the images. Garvey, the stupid idiot, didn't even know somebody was right under his nose. And this is supposed to be a secret project? Stupidity spawns from the top. You're talking about the director. Good thought, Bronsky. I don't even have to mention his name, and you deduced it. Vernon scrolled back until he matched the image. That guy. That's the guy. Portal. Body feature check on the painter in the image with the man on the tower. Numbers rolled across the screen and then red bold letters flashed on the bottom. 100% accurate. Aurelio. Miguel. I knew it. He double-checked the binoculars. The guy remained on his stomach studying the range. I'd like to get this to the service, but I just don't trust Mundy. We're being used as pawns up here. Bronsky displayed another program in the upper topographical map. Ariel, Miguel, here's the resume. Get it to the main service net, Bronsky. Match Aurelio with the records. Gobby won't like that. Vernon lowered the binoculars and slowly turned to Bronsky. Son, you let me worry about John Garvey. Bronsky nodded and typed in the instructions and codes into his portal as Vernon pushed his own RISCOM button. Get me band 16.5, priority. Bronsky fed the Aurelio image into the tablet's transmission scanner, and it moved slowly as if the machine were eating it. Ah, I'm in. Good. Bravo 16, this is Crawford. Bravo 16, read you, Crawford. This is a priority command. The Vandermeer intruder is located on the summit of... 
He pulled another tablet closer and looked at the map screen over his bifocals. Southeast Mountain, Appleton, Vermont. This individual is in proximity to a classified project. I need this man alive. Repeat, I need this man alive. Yes, sir, I will relay this information to Lieutenant Colonel Garvey. No, forget about Garvey. Just get a copter up there and bring in this individual. The connection disappeared. Hello? Hello? What the hell is happening now? Aurelio's picture is in the service net, Vernon. He cut me off. Has to speak with Garvey first? This is bullshit. Vernon turned to the tower. It's imperative that we have this guy alive, Bronski. There's no telling what this clown is up to. Maybe Garvey had pushed too hard. Mikey thought they had scrubbed the test. He turned abruptly just after 8 a.m. when sonic booms rumbled throughout the morning sky. The silver antenna rod sparked with electricity, yet there was no visible connection. He sat up. Loftus would go wild with this information. He tried the wrist comm again, hitting it several times, but it wouldn't function. In less than an hour, he might find a landline if he headed to the other town south of the mountain. He marveled at the brilliant yellow and orange sparks sputtering in the clearing. He scrambled down the tower ladder. A constant whooshing increased in intensity downrange when he reached the next grid level. As he edged his way back down the ladder, several red military jet copters lifted upward near the antenna clearing and veered toward the tower. He gripped the metal rails along the ladder. Like a firefighter sliding down a pole, he dropped down each ladder section in spurts until he hit the dirt. He crawled under the supports on his stomach and lifted himself up. This time he sprinted from the tower and leapfrogged the rocks along a well-trodden wooded trail down the other side. The air rotors cut the mountain stillness. He slipped on the rocks and smashed against the trees, slicing his face and hands. The pain was less important now than getting away. He looked over his shoulder as he ran onto a lower ridge. Somehow they were tracking him with their sophisticated instruments. The air rotors roared loudly as the copters skimmed the treetops, twisting the leaves and branches like a hurricane's fierce winds. He tripped again and his body bounced down the slope. He counted four copters above the ridges as he struggled to his feet. Staggering through the woods, he banged the wrist calm. He dodged the trees and hurtled over the small bushes. A torrent of bullets sprayed and shredded the tree leaves and devoured the ground cover. His ankle cracked and a sharp exploding pain erupted, sending him tumbling. Blood leaked into his sock and sneaker. All four copters hovered just above the swaying green treetops. He saw the summer leaves decimated as a rapid patter of bullets pummeled his body back into the earth. Chapter 12 Loftus, fatigued and confused by the most recent deep hypnosis, held the windowsill and awaited Phil's return to the room. Again, the subconscious images of silver cluster ships in the skies had been as vivid as reality. Cars stopped at the city checkpoint on the bridge. The additional troops meant more violence inside the city. His thoughts mixed with the image of the bay's shimmering waters. In his head, he replayed the conversation with Zack before the hypnosis. Zack had told him that Mikey had not checked in, nor could they find him at the Appleton Motel. He turned and took large strides toward the kitchen. Hey, Phil, what's the delay? Phil placed the milk carton back on the refrigerator shelf and stirred his coffee. What are you chattering about, Loftus? Oh, by the way, Zach was up here while you were under. 
Well, I'm leaving town. Or was it something I said? He fixated on Loftus's clear medallion and then held it in his hand. I still find this thing very interesting. Where did you say you got it? Well, I've had it since I was a kid. But where did you get it? Loftus gazed into his steely blue eyes. I don't know. Well, that's what we need to work on. Your earlier years, I'm at a loss as to why I can't get past all these dreams of aliens and spaceships. What about the alien sightings in northern Canada? Phil was about to sip the coffee, but he lowered the cup. When one of the central feeds show an in-the-flesh alien, then I'll believe the story. The description of that thing in Canada matches the Creods, and you know it, Phil. Phil set the cup on the kitchen counter. Tom, you know descriptions of such things are general. Loftus banged his fist on the counter, shaking the cup. No, it matches. Seven feet plus, mesh black eyes, tapered chin, silver suit. Don't tell me it's a general description, Phil. Phil's eyes moistened. Listen, I, I can't explain it. I checked through the channels. The service does not validate any of these stories. Well, that doesn't surprise me, said Loftus. I have to go. Would you lock up and we'll get together again soon? Suit yourself. Loftus grabbed his coat and passed through the doorway. Zack was at the bottom of the stairs. Loftus looked at Phil back in the kitchen, closed the door, and then descended the stairs. Zack put his finger over his lips as he spoke in a whisper. Captain, I have bad news. We need to get out of here right now. Mikey? No. O'Brien. He's dead. Loftus looked up the stairs. What? How can he be dead? We had him hidden in the condo. The kid never knew what hit him. One hollow point to the head. Captain, I just contacted Aris. The company jet is being fueled right now. They'll bring us wherever we want to go. Loftus nodded. They can bring us to Appleton. It's my fault Mikey went back there. I should have gone back there myself. He looked into his friend's cold, dark eyes. He worried about Mikey. He couldn't help not thinking about Kath. I don't trust Phil, Captain. He's part of the service. We're leaving through the freight tunnel. There's no doubt they're on to us. Chapter 13. Mundy adjusted his silver-rimmed glasses and smiled when Mabel announced Garvey's arrival. He combed his thinning brown hair once and checked the colorful medals and insignias on his army uniform. The outside door opened and he turned, but he stubbed his toe on the corner of his desk as the shorter John Garvey marched into his office. Congratulations and I repeat, congratulations are in order, yes sir, yes sir, in order. Well, thank you, Colonel, I... I do hope you're pleased with the Appleton results. Garvey always shook hands as if he were trying to personally prove something. Mundy's hand ached from the crunch. Well, be assured that everyone up north is impressed, and he is duly impressed, too, and we all work for him. And when he is assured of the acceptable mode, surely there can be an affirmative proceeding, if you get my drift, or alternatively, of course. What the hell? Let me detail the details. The little grunt, O'Brien, he stuck his nose in with the big boys, and just like the defunct Garrett Raster. Good, very good, and very gone, very gone. Yeah, right. Where's the loyalty? Gins never had it. He was one of our operatives. Yes, Colonel. He superseded his authority. Authority comes from the top, and don't you forget it. No, sir, I won't. Mundy checked the mirror again and straightened his narrow brown tie. The gravity of the present situation in our country requires extraordinary means. I'm sorry, Colonel, but I just don't know what you mean. 
Don't you understand the gravity? The gravity! I'll brief you on what we have in mind. Well, Colonel, we have selectively eliminated some key people within the energy conglomerate. What's well, only part of the plan? We've developed the means within Rima to divert power grids. Because while you've been busy with your target teams, we have infiltrated our own operatives to fill those voids. Add in our own people at strategic locations with our ability to divert power into selective power grids worldwide, and you have a collective jackpot. Bing, bang, boom. Garvey stroked his chin and tilted his head. Wait a minute. We have the means to transmit electricity invisibly without wires and we're linked into grid systems? But we don't generate the power, Colonel. Mundy did not smile or gloat. John, 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 I'm not at liberty to give you the details right now, my friend. But we have a power source that could conceivably last forever. Power everything, everywhere. Interesting, said Garby, furrowing his brow. And the means to transmit that power. Our transmitters are in place around the world. You can link up with existing power grids anywhere. On the money! That's cash on the bulkhead! I think you mean the barrel head, Colonel. Barrel? Bulk? What's the difference? We will have the final say about who gets blacked out in the cities, who has power, and who doesn't, said Garvey. Absolutely, positively. My only concern is that someone outside the service will trace the killings. That's why Atkins and O'Brien are dead, and Tom Loftus and his cigar-smoking buddy will soon be dead. Loftus? asked Garvey, his compact face reflecting concern. How did Tom Loftus get into this? He ordered O'Brien brought into a condo in California. You think Vernon Crawford's report about that painter has anything to do with Loftus? asked Garvey. No doubt, no doubt. The resume was generated by a non-existent company rerouted into the portal archives. We can't even trace it. Zach Grasso would have the ability to do that. Mundy smiled from the corner of his mouth. We won't have to worry about those two much longer. Well, I suggest you run that by the premium mobile. You know how he feels about Loftus. Well, Loftus got in the way. This is none of his business. And somebody else put him up to it, put him up to it. And that individual or individuals, if found, will, will join Mr. O'Brien at all. I agree that the other killings were necessary, but having Lofted pitted against us may not be smart, said Garvey. Mundy waddled over to his desk and plopped his large frame in the leather chair. The killings were vital. I cannot take responsibility for people who make poor choices. Is that any way for patriotic Americans to act? Well, most of them weren't Americans, sir. Oh, moot point. He shuffled some papers and then pointed at Garvey. It's taken us years for our proxies to control the power sources and our operatives to be put in place. What about the next phase, Colonel? Phase two involves controlling the central feeds. Our centralized system is the only way we can manage what people see in their virtual rooms. Oh, we'll make it seem like competitive bands, but everything will come from one source, and that source will be... I've been told nothing about a source. What source is that? Nothing, nothing. Let's just say our technology has surpassed the central feeds and the populace. The people live within their own little world. Nobody cares about the truth. They'll only get upset if you deactivate their virtual rooms. Garvey approached the desk, placed his hands on the edge, and leaned over. I just don't understand how Reamer accomplished all this. We don't have the means to do this. Who does? A very talented Rupakan. 
Excuse me, a talented what? Asked Garvey, wincing. Not your concern. Colonel, I don't understand anything you're saying. Indirectly, phase two will begin this morning. Vandermeer was supposed to be shipped up north, but he's returning for a meeting with Frank DeLuca and myself in 45 minutes. DeLuca is a turncoat. Maybe, maybe, but that's past. Now we'll use DeLuca, his contacts, and his service experience is extensive. You know that. All we need him for is to sell our technology to the president. Frankly, I would have gone right to the president, but the premium mobile has a certain amount of respect for DeLuca. DeLuca set me down in rank, the bastard. I have told you all this classified information because I want the facility at Southeast Mountain, the prototype facility, to be defended to the death. What you did with Raster was superb. He was no longer necessary. I will support you to the nth degree, the nth degree. And if you're worried about what Frank DeLuca once did to you, your promotion is in order and being finalized right now. Well, thank you, sir. And you will find some, how shall we say, friends in your hotel room. Well, thank you, Colonel. I appreciate your confidence. You don't have to worry about impressing me, John. We all have to impress only one person. The Premium Mobile. Chapter 14. Mundy despised Vandermeer's taking credit for everything at Rima. For 15 minutes outside of DeLuca's office, he had listened to this scientific gobbledygook and now the doctor complained about John Garvey killing Raster. Mundy walked over to the water cooler, pulled the tap, and filled the paper cup. He took a hefty, cooling gulp and then turned. You listen to me, Horace. You work for the service. Your job is specific to Rima. You leave the rest to us. Don't rock the boat with DeLuca. What am I next? asked Vandermeer. Not if you keep that boat steady. Steady as she goes, you understand? One of DeLuca's well-dressed aides trotted into the outer office. Gentlemen, uh, Frank apologizes for the delay. Can I help you with the equipment? Thank you, said Vandermeer. The doctor is capable of carrying his own equipment, said Mundy. Then he spoke from the side of his mouth. Remember what I said, Horace. The aide glanced at the equipment and motioned them toward the door. Please come with me. Vandermeer lifted the heavy black cases as Mundy marched inside. DeLuca alodged me and fully extended his six-foot-four frame. Mundy gazed up at his bell nose and floppy silver hair. DeLuca knew how to make deals, and Mundy needed a deal. Hamid, it's been a long time. How the hell are you? Still wearing those 20th century glasses? Mundy shook his wide hand. Well, I, uh... DeLuca squinted and then headed for the door. Hey, don't make the doctor carry his cases, for Pete's sake. DeLuca crossed the thick white carpet and helped his aide bring Vandermeer's black case into the office. Then he extended his hand. Good to see you, Horace. How have you been? Working hard, Frank. Yes, we have a revolutionary system here, said Mundy. He wedged his body between DeLuca and Vandermeer. I guarantee you, you will be astounded by what you see here tonight. Luca raised his bushy brows. You sound like a circus ringmaster, Harmon. Why don't you let the doctor explain what he's come up with? Actually, Garrett Raster had a good deal of input into this system, said Vandermeer, scowling at Mundy. DeLuca returned to his desk and sat down as Dave closed the outside door. Now you both know about my relationship with Rima. 
Over the years, I have seen things touted as revolutionary, and it turns out to be a lot of happy horseshit. Monday lingered in front of a long gold mirror. Frank, I tell you, this is revolutionary to the nth degree. The nth plus n. Well, I'll withhold judgment until Monday turned from the mirror. We can ask no more. Now, the technology we will demonstrate here for you today will be the standard in security systems of the future. He talks, Horace, like he's personally sought at every circuit. Monday then hovered over DeLuca's desk. If we take this heightened knowledge to implement various sectors and automate the intricate... Speak English, will you, Harmon? Of course, of course, we live in trying times, Frank. Just last year, DeLuca stood and banged both fists on the desk. Harmon, shut up. I know the fix the country is in, and I know this is a security system. Well, let me elaborate. No, just sit down, said DeLuca as he slid around the desk. Horace, what has Rima come up with? Vandermeer had connected the equipment to DeLuca's office portal screen and activated a blue background. He inserted a disc in one of the portals, and the view of the empty White House briefing room slowly focused. You may begin, Doctor, said Mundy. Vandermeer pursed his lips, looked at Mundy, and then at the screen. Portal, add the reporters. The room buzzed with the Meteor Outlet Corps. So what? asked DeLuca. We've moved images on portals for years. Except these images, these reporters, they never exist and don't exist in reality. We're making it work interactively, replied Vandermeer, creating reality. DeLuca sat on the edge of his desk and folded his arms. Right, they've done a few movies like that out in Hollywood. While not perfectly interactive, movies have been made with false images. Vandermeer approached DeLuca. Frank, those were done frame by frame. These have done instantaneously and the simulation can react. It flows like reality on a portal screen or in a virtual room. Oh, you're shitting me. Portal, put the president at the podium. DeLuca watched as the stuffy gray-haired Norman King, dressed in a blue suit and red tie, appeared at the podium. Mundy nodded and smiled as DeLuca slowly crossed the office. You're saying that this news conference never happened. No, it never did, said Vandermeer. Put Frank behind the president portal. DeLuca, in his light sports coat, stood holding a clipboard and talked to another advisor on the screen. Well, I take back what I said about Rima. He turned to Vandermeer. Think you made me a little heavy in that picture there, Horace. Change it, portal. DeLuca instantly shed 20 pounds on the screen. Well, I wish I could do that in real life. We're working on it, said Vandermeer, grinning. Here's the point on this phase. Phase? I want to know exactly what you mean by phase, said DeLuca. Mundy moved closer. We have much more, much more. Well, it's hard to top this. How do you propose to use this? We can input anything we want into the central feeds, Frank. Things that never happen. Control the impact of disasters in our cities. It doesn't make sense to worry people not affected by the breakdown of society. DeLuca retreated to his desk, shaking his head as he sat. He placed his fingers into a triangular position as he squinted. Well, I don't know if I subscribe to altering what's fed through the bands. It's a simple matter of controlling the feeds. Selectively, at first, dribs and drabs. I don't like it. People aren't stupid. They won't buy it. It's just wrong. And I don't know how necessary it is. Well, the country is falling apart, shouted Mundy. Then let's try and put it back together, Harmon. Well, I admire the technology. What do you want us to do? Take over the central feeds? Think you better think about this, Frank. Yes, you better. 
Mundy curled his upper lip. Well, don't threaten me, Harmon. Maybe the next demonstration would steer DeLuca in the right direction. We have more. Oh, yes, we do. Okay, okay. Vandermeer unpacked the larger cases. We'll have to wait a few minutes for this. What we are about to see has a direct practical security application, Frank. Well, I'll consider everything, said DeLuca in a more analytical way. But he glanced at Mundy and again grimaced. Then he checked some paperwork and signed several documents. Over the next half hour, as Vandermeer fiddled with the equipment, DeLuca spoke with some members of Congress on the landline and the RISCOM. Mundy grew angrier. One man could not stand in the way of progress. As he stared at DeLuca, he knew he would not hesitate, killing him if he got in the way. Would you gentlemen like some uh, coffee? asked DeLuca. Well, that would be very much appreciated. I'll be another 15 minutes here, Frank, said Vandermeer. DeLuca summoned his aides on the intercom and ordered the coffee and assorted pastries. Then he bypassed Mundy and squatted next to Vandermeer. He spoke in a lower voice, annoying Mundy. Listen, Horace, I'm serious about the applications about what you've done here, but we can't get reckless. I agree, Frank. How we use this is more important than the actual breakthrough. DeLuca nodded and stood. You gentlemen had best just mind your P's and Q's. DeLuca gulped his coffee and continued a conversation with local Homeland Security officials about bringing in more troops. He had just set down the cup when his office door opened and the president strolled into his office. DeLuca stood, cut the conversation short, and sat down the landline. Well, Mr. President, I thought you were in St. Louis. I've been told about the tremendous accomplishments of Reamer and I wanted to see for myself. Norman, do you really know what the hell is going on here? asked DeLuca. The president put his hand on DeLuca's shoulder. Sounds like the most important breakthrough of the century. Breakthrough, yes, but how will it be used? DeLuca escorted the president over to Mundy and Vandermeer. Hammond, you know, of course, and I believe you have met Dr. Vandermeer on occasion. Gentlemen, said the president, shaking their hands. DeLuca looked at the flat screen and then back at the president. They're about to demonstrate another phase. Frank, I am the next phase. Well, I don't understand, Mr. President. DeLuca looked into his blue eyes, but the president vanished. Well, where the hell is he? What is this? Vandermeer's eyes moistened as he turned from the equipment. He walked slowly to DeLuca and held his forearm. Frank, the president was never there. Please. <laughs> DeLuca started laughing. Well, this, this, is, uh, this is bullshit. No bullshit, Frank, said the president from behind. DeLuca turned, but King disappeared again. Mundy strutted forward with his arms folded. What do you think of Reamer now, Frank? Touch my shoulder, Harmon. A moving holographic image that has sensation of touch? Oh, a holographic image would be a rather primitive depiction, said Vandermeer. DeLuca staggered to his desk, pinching the bridge of his nose as he sat down. He pulled out a bottle of bourbon from his desk drawer and poured a shot, and he drank it quickly. Then he faced Vandermeer. Only project personnel, no one else, said Mundy. DeLuca ran his fingers through his gray hair. Well, this is dangerous. In the wrong hands, this is dangerous. The magic words, the magic words, the wrong hands, said Mundy. Frank, we no longer need to have our leaders exposed to assassination. You've seen the convincing proof of the ultimate security. Well, I hear you, I hear you. DeLuca exhaled and walked to the window. For several minutes, he said nothing and stared at the Washington Monument in the reflecting pool. 
how do we have the technology for this? I want the president, the real president, back here now. I want a full reporting of all Reamer activities for him. Well, that's absurd, said Mundy. DeLuca turned. Is it? If I were you, I'd get your accountants, your personnel, and be ready for a thorough examination. Everything that you've mentioned is too dangerous. I've had a gut feeling for weeks there's something going on, and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Agent Vernon Crawford from Loftus' old days in the service is already in Appleton with a young renegade. Mike Brand, Mikey, has positioned himself within the operation where he listens directly to evidence of an illegal project. He attempts escape and flees into the mountains. Only hours later, he is gunned down. Running the Appleton operation is the bumbling head of the service, Colonel Harmon Mundy, who reports to the Premium Mobile from a faraway location. Word gets back to San Francisco, and Loftus and Zach head back not only to his old school, but to the woman he left behind to join the service. Join me next time for Episode 3 of Sojourn by Robert P. Fitton as Tom Loftus and Zach Grasso arrive in Appleton, Vermont. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.